Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, so what do you think the, uh, the sickest burn that a GOP member of the Oversight Committee threw at Michael Cohen today was? I don't know. They were all like, oh, my God, you're such a liar. You're such a terrible person. I can't believe anything you said. How much do you lie? All the time? Let me count the ways. You're a bad lawyer. Like (laughs) That ship has sailed, friends. (laughs) He's like, you're right. And I was just barred yesterday. Uh, Also, but for somebody who's like pled guilty to lying, accusing him of being a liar, seems like it is kind of missing the point. A liar, liar. Yep, which pants did... on fire, which actually got said. <laughs> actually said. <laughs> when you, when the, basically the thrust of your retort to this witness that is kind of devastating the president is liar, liar, pants on fire, you might be losing. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the liar, liar, pants on fire edition. I'm Shane Harris. I am wearing pants. They're Are they not on fire? Not on fire. They're hot though. <laughs> They're just my jeans. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I'm not a liar, liar, pants on fire. Never been called one. Maybe on Twitter. Maybe not to your face. Maybe not to my face. I've been called a liar. Have you? Yeah, all the time. All the people who think I made up all that stuff about Jim Comey and blue drapes. Pants on. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you going to believe? Me or the I could just ask the He does not have that good of an imagination to come up with the fake blue drape story. (laughs) I'm here in the jungle studio with my friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Yo. Uh, Where's Tammy? Tammy woke up in Istanbul this morning, but I think by the time we are recording, she's probably in London. Is she in Prague? Is she going to she, Prague? Uh, she's never, has she ever been to Prague? I think she has never been to Prague, but if she has, it was 14 years ago. <laughs> when she was a good lawyer. Yeah. Before she was disbarred. <laughs> <laughs> On the podcast this week, President Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, testifies to Congress. Uh, Adam Schiff signals he's coming after all of the Russia probe documents, and U.S. Cyber Command hits back at a Russian troll farm. Um, so let's start with the obvious, shall we? While we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, we are in a lunch break, actually, for Michael Cohen's testimony before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, uh, which is one of three appearances he's making before Congress this week, the only one that's public. Um, so we don't know exactly how it might end, but I think we've seen basically the thrust of it in the first roughly four and a half hours or so of his time there. Um, so l- let's go through maybe, I think, the best way to do this is some of the uh, the things that Michael Cohen actually testified to. I think it was notable that uh, I didn't see any save one exchange with Republican members where anyone actually engaged him on the substance of his allegations that he was testifying to. Some on the Democratic side. Can, can we pause just to note that fact? Yeah, I think it's um, we've, highly we've, notable. We've had many, many hours now of Michael Cohen testifying and not a single Republican has been interested in developing the factual record that he might be willing to be able to 
to contribute to. Right. I mean, the thrust of it was that they were trying to shame a shameless man uh, and also make him out to be a liar, which he readily admits that he has been. So it's sort of like um, he's kind of hit rock bottom at this point. I'm not sure what the strategy was for attacking his credibility more than just trying to create sound bites and, and sort of, you know, shred his reputation more than it already is and basically say this person cannot be believed. So we shouldn't listen to anything he has to say about the president. But the special counsel has listened to things he's had to say about the president. Prosecutors in the Southern District of New York have listened to it. So let's let's talk about what he said in substance. So it strikes me one of the, the, the top line items would be, Ben, let's start with you, is that he claims that the president knew in advance about email dumps from WikiLeaks, that there was a conversation that he overheard while it was on speakerphone between Trump and Roger Stone, in which Roger Stone says, I talked to Julian Assange and they're going to release emails damaging to Hillary Clinton. That seems like a pretty big reveal in terms of the timeline of the known facts. So I'm not sure how big a deal it is from a legal point of view, but I do think it's a big deal from a moral and narrative point of view. So legally, look, there's always this question about WikiLeaks. You know, if you're sort of downstream of WikiLeaks, how different is WikiLeaks from the New York Times legally, right? How different is WikiLeaks from normal journalism? And so if you have advance notice that WikiLeaks got something and they're going to release it, why is that really different from knowing that the New York Times has a story that's about to come out or that Shane Harris has a story that's going to well, come out? In the political context, it's very different. Also, the president would have been lying about it for three years. Well, so. Right. So, so, but, but that's, you know, that, that's a, a sort of narrowly legal yeah. collusion context. Right. So right? That's less interesting. But, but now that. let's think about it from the point of view of, all right, the president has been out there saying no collusion. I uh, have nothing to do with Russia. And he actually gets a phone call, if this is true, from Roger Stone saying, yo, just got off the phone with Julian Assange, who's going to leak, uh, who's going to dump a whole lot of information damaging to your opponent that everybody, including the participants in that conversation knows was stolen by Russian intelligence and fed to WikiLeaks by Russian intelligence. I think that's a, you know, a kind of uh, a sort of holy shit thing from a narrative point of view, but I'm not sure it has a whole lot of major legal consequences. So I think it has one potentially massive legal consequence, and that's that Earlier this year, or I guess late last year, in November uh, 2018, CNN reported that among the written answers that Donald Trump had provided to Robert Mueller, he said that Roger Stone did not tell him about WikiLeaks and that he hadn't been told anything about this 2016 Trump Tower meeting uh, by Don Jr. or others in attendance. That is incredibly significant, right? So if Cohen is now publicly going on the record and saying, I heard Stone tell Trump about WikiLeaks. And Stone has also sort of maintained the party line in public of saying, I never talked about WikiLeaks with the president. Cohen isn't just saying that he heard with his own ears the contrary. He also put other witnesses in the room. And so that I do think is, it's certainly not a game-changing revelation in the sense that it's certain that Robert Mueller has known this information for a very long period of time. But if it is accurate that it contradicts the president's written statements, then I think that is legally significant. Yes. So that is absolutely le legally significant. But then it puts a huge premium on the question of how credible Cohen is, because unlike some of the other areas that I assume we'll talk about later or separately, 
this is an area where there aren't he doesn't present documents he doesn't present you know a lot of corroboration i suppose you could ask uh julian assange uh whether he's telling the truth he has uh, said publicly uh, but he's, he's already not, said yeah. it's not true and you could ask roger stone and but he he said, he said it's not true and presumably would again whether truthfully or not yeah. and again don jr you could you could call him and say hey did you sneak behind the your father's desk and say into his ear that the meeting was all set and was it a reference to the Trump Tower meeting uh, but he's unlikely to say yes yeah. so it really does put a premium on how much you believe Michael Cohen who is after all Which a is liar a liar pants problem. on fire <laughs> yeah. but keep in mind the special counsel filing from just a few weeks ago in which special counsel prosecutors refer to knowledge of direct communication between Stone and WikiLeaks WikiLeaks and Assange are the same entity right it's not as though there are other people so whenever they refer to WikiLeaks they are talking about Assange and kind so of like Shane and the Washington Post exactly. are they like oh, when, sure. you, when you talk about talk to the Washington Post like the queen that, in the I'm throne being, that yeah, means I mean, you were on the phone with Shane Harris <laughs> the royal way I'm sure Marty Baron agrees with you so uh, so that is potentially um, uh, Mueller giving a little bit of a hint in advance in that Stone case filing that oh yeah that they do have the piece of Stone directly communicating with WikiLeaks right so Ben you alluded to another piece that that Cohen testified about, which was that Trump may have known in advance about the Trump Tower meeting with the Russian lawyer. This is where he says Donald Trump Jr. goes behind the desk and whispers in his ear, but in a way that Cohen says he can hear the meeting is set. And Trump says, "Great, you know, I can't even know whisper correctly. Can't even whisper correctly." <laughs> but so let's not let's too much, spend too much time on that one. But I want to get to another one because it actually touches on the BuzzFeed story, which we've talked so much about on the podcast. And the upshot of this is that Michael Cohen very explicitly said Donald Trump did not direct me to lie to Congress. However, what he is making very clear is that Donald Trump would never tell me, Michael, go lie to Congress. Rather, Donald Trump creates an environment and an atmosphere in which, as Michael Cohen said, he speaks in code. I understand what he wants. And it was, according to Cohen, very clear that Donald Trump wanted to maintain the narrative that there was no interaction with Russia, no collusion with Russia, that the Trump Tower Moscow deal did not go on for as long as everyone privately knew it was. He says, quote, I knew exactly what he wanted me to say, quote, he doesn't tell you what he wants. What he does is say, Michael, there's no Russia, there's no collusion, dot, dot, dot. I know what that means because I've been around him for so long. He also importantly says that Trump's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, and also Abby Lowell made changes to his congressional testimony with regards to the timing issue specifically. So now he's roped in them. This seemed to me – I mean, we can talk about – let's talk about the, 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 the events he's describing themselves and also in relation to the BuzzFeed article. This seems to me to be saying well, – while Cohen is not saying the president explicitly told me to lie, essentially he's saying in so many words, the president told me to lie or and certainly knew I was going to lie and didn't prevent me and encourage me to do so. So I think this is really significant and the lawyer's review is really significant and does uh, sort of take us a step. It does move the ball forward. And that's that there is no way Trump's lawyers reviewed and returned edits on that statement without having a conversation with their client about their client's factual representations of what happened. It's, it is impossible that that communication and conversation did not take place between Trump and his lawyers. And so that is a substantial and significant tie. It is now, one, clear that, this, that the testimony was false, 
clear that the president knew it was false at the time. Therefore, any advance involvement, any kind of editing that does not correct the factual inaccuracies, that then does things like return edits, presumably to encourage the eventual submission of that, and at no point flags for Cohen, for his attorneys, for Congress, or for the American public, that a sworn statement contains a factual inaccuracy, that it is perjury, I do think that is a substantial step forward between saying this is the president of the United States suborning perjury. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and I, I actually think so. Let's review the sequence of events here, how we learned these facts. So first you have, you know, Cohen's plea deal where he basically said, I did this out of loyalty, right, to the president and out of uh, and sort of described it as something that he did. Then BuzzFeed writes this story that says the president directed him to do it and personally instructed him to do it. And the entire political system wigs out for 24 hours. And this is going to trigger an impeachment investigation. And it's a huge deal because now the president is suborning perjury, at which point Bob Mueller steps in through the uh, mysterious personage of Peter Carr and issues this statement that there is factual inaccuracy in the BuzzFeed account of the way Cohen, what Cohen said to the special counsel's office. And a lot of people interpreted that, including uh, a big story in the Washington Post, interpreted that as a total repudiation of the BuzzFeed story. And what this reflects, I still don't want to evaluate the BuzzFeed story because I have a hundred questions that I don't have answers to. But what this reflects is that the reality is almost certainly neither the president said, Michael Cohen, submit a statement and please include the following inaccuracy in it, right? That, that is not what happened. But also what is not, ha what did not happen is that the president had nothing to do with Michael Cohen submitting a statement that turned out to have major intentional inaccuracies. Rather, what Michael Cohen is alleging is that for months, the president would look at him and say, "There's, I have nothing going on in Russia. Uh, there's no issue. There, there's no, there's no deals in Russia. I got no business in Russia. There's no collusion." And he knew that that was the party line that he had to represent. And then, and this is the part that's still a little bit fuzzy. Well, what's not fuzzy is in his statement, he makes clear that he knew the pres what the president wanted him to say. And as Susan said, he, the president's lawyers, reviewed and edited his statement. But what he then adds to it in today's hearing is that shortly before the statement is issued, he has this meeting with Jay Sekulow and the president in which the president, again, does not say Michael Cohen lie, but reiterates what the party line is. And so, you know, without getting into the evaluation of BuzzFeed's story, which I, I think we got to wait until there's a, a, a fuller factual record to do. But without getting into that, it is fair to say that the president, you know, this is not the situation that people assumed when Mueller issued that statement and everybody decided that BuzzFeed had gotten it completely wrong and we were kind of back to square one. 
the president's got a problem here. But look, it's it's the Bill Clinton, Betty Curry situation almost exactly, right? As we've talked about in the past, not an example in which you are saying tell a lie, an example in which you are making statements to a witness in advance of their testimony that both you and the witness know are false. And so if it was good enough for impeachment back then, uh, it's really, really hard for me to come up with any kind of factual or legal distinction in this. I mean, it, it strikes me as basically the the same case. So there was also a bit of news, actually, out of this hearing. So under questioning by uh, Representative Krishnamurthy, Cohen revealed, it seems, that Donald Trump is being investigated for other crimes that we don't know about. I'll just read the exchange here. The congressman asked, when was the last communication with President Trump or someone acting on his behalf, meaning your last communication, Michael Cohen? So I don't have the specific date, but it was a while ago, congressman. Okay, do you have a general time frame? And they settled on probably sometime early last year uh, and that it would have been after the raid uh, of Michael Holmes, Cohen's home and office and hotel. Uh, and then the president, congressman says, and what did he, President Trump, or his agent communicate to you, Cohen? Unfortunately, this topic is actually something that's being investigated right now by the Southern District of New York, and I've asked them not to discuss and not to talk about these issues. They've a- I've been asked. Congressman says, fair enough. Is there any other wrongdoing or illegal act that you're aware of regarding Donald Trump that we haven't discussed today? Cohen, yes. And again, those are part of the investigation that's currently being looked at by the Southern District of New York. And he emphasized numerous times that he continued to be cooperative and happily so with the Southern District. So it looks like Cohen is saying- Tick, 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 tick. <laughs> there's more here. Now, I get we should be careful not to overread this in any way. But I do think it, 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 it should at least serve as a reminder, as has been said now in the past you know, week or so, as we're anticipating what that the Mueller report could potentially be underwhelming and certainly not legally damaging for the president, that there's this whole other area where he is very vulnerable uh, in the Southern District uh, so in those investigations. I, I agree with all that. I don't know that it's, it is substantially new information, right? So it gives us a little bit of detail that Cohen is talking about this, uh, you know, the, that he's talking with prosecutors. There was a New York Times story recently that maybe he was talking to um, the New York District Attorney's Office about or my mix. Well, but it stories. postdates the raid. That's interesting. Right. So I think the reason why we don't want to read too much into it is because we have no idea the state of those investigations. And so the Southern District, you know, to the extent that they instructed him not to talk about things is going to be as overprotective as possible. So Anything that is even sort of on the table, sort of involves Trump, might involve Trump, right? So they don't, they don't have any reason to believe it, it involves Trump right now, but it, it might plausibly in the future. And so, yes, it's interesting as, you know, hmm, that's a, you know, maybe there's going to be something there, but I do think that there's a temptation to really overread it as this, you know, this big bombshell is coming. There's this whole other investigative line of inquiry when really it could reveal anything from, uh, he's confirming what's already been reported, which is that there's inquiries into the into the Trump uh, organization out of the Southern District, and Michael Cohen has talked to investigators about them, all the way to something that is going to be sort of a game changing sort of special counsel 2.0 style thing. So it's it's just hard to know what it means. So let's just briefly wrap this segment quickly from both of you guys. So in the aggregate. How much damage does this do to President Trump? And you can take that as a legal or a political matter or both. I think there are two areas where it's seriously damaging. One is the Trump Tower Moscow discussion. 
and the other, and, and this is legally damaging. One is Trump Tower Moscow, where it really does raise a significant question about his involvement in Michael Cohen's false statements. And the other, which we haven't talked about, is the question of payments to mistresses, where he uh, it really does seem to move the conduct into the period of his presidency. Because that's when he writes the checks. W- yeah. Which, yeah, I, you know, which, and by the way, also seems to implicate Don Jr. Yes, in it that, uh, that by having his signature on one of the checks. And so I, I do think those are significant areas. I think the other, the collusion stuff is narratively really interesting and sort of an interesting part of the story. I don't, you know, bracketing Susan's point that uh, if you lied about anything, of course, that becomes significant. I don't know how significant that is legally. And then there's all this other stuff that is just super embarrassing personally, uh, like threatening people about the release of your grades and SAT scores. I mean, there's just a whole lot of that stuff that makes him look awful but probably we've all priced into our evaluations of him already that he's the sort of awful person that does that kind of thing. So I don't know that this hearing will be politically game-changing in the immediate, in part because we saw such clear signals from Republicans that they are not prepared to move based on anything that was included in this testimony. There was nothing that they heard. I do think, however, that it is incredibly politically significant because it's very clear that this is the first hearing. This is not the last. Cohen talked about other witnesses they should call. He talked about other issues that sort of weren't before them today, but but they should be investigating separately. I think that it it didn't just signal that there's going to be more hearings. It actually laid a genuine like predicate and justification for more legitimate congressional oversight. And that line that's going to happen from here on out, and the idea that a lot of that is going to be public, um, I do think is has the potential to be you know politically devastating to the president. Well, Michael Cohen is not done talking to Congress yet. Uh, tomorrow, he has an appointment with Adam Schiff and Devin Nunes. The House Intelligence Committee will hear. And that's where they get to talk about all the fun stuff. All the good stuff. And it's going to be closed, you guys. We're not going to hear anything. Because um, you never hear anything that happens on a hipsy here. Right. Oh, no. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's closed. Well, now, but also now that we know there's apparently no P-tape and no elevator tape, I mean. Shane's just lost interest. He's like, honestly, like, I'm going to uh, cover a different beat now. Collusion, pamusion, confusion. Uh, but so Adam Schiff is, I think, is obviously. That's Adam shit to you. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> that's what the president oh, calls right. him. <laughs> I do like whenever you have to remind someone that actually you're referring to something that the president said. That's right. right. Like You're not being personal. To be clear, I've never called the chairman by that name. Um, so, uh, but Adam Schiff is, so there's, there's obviously, it has the, this hearing on his mind for tomorrow. Um, but I think seems to be gearing up for what we might think of as the post Mueller phase of this investigation in which it seems that the House Intelligence Committee is going to play a major role. Uh, and there was a tweet that really caught my attention from, from the chairman uh, in which I think he signaled very clearly that it's his intention 
attention to get his hands on not just the Mueller report in whatever form that that takes, but all of the underlying investigative material that informed it and that perhaps even predates the Office of Special Counsel and goes to the FBI's counterintelligence probe. Uh, that that had begun. Uh, he was actually t- tweeting in response to something that my colleague sent out, a, remarks by Rod Rosenstein, where he says, in part, th- there's a lot of reasons not to be transparent about what we do in government. And essentially, Rod laying out the idea that, look, you know, the stuff that uh, is happening in the background that doesn't necessarily find its way into a public indictment are things that we should not necessarily reveal. To which Schiff tweets, this double standard won't cut it. For two years, I sounded the alarm about DOJ's deviation from just that principle as it turned over hundreds of thousands of pages in closed or ongoing investigations. I warned that DOJ would need to live by this precedent, and it will. So, Susan, I mean, what Schiff is alluding to here, and it's a matter of we've talked a lot about on the podcast, DOJ has given Congress all kinds of information from the Carter Page FISA warrants to copies of FBI 302s, reports of interviews, internal communications about the processes for seeking a FISA application, texts among FBI agents, other investigative materials, as well as other investigative information about the Hillary Clinton server. So did DOJ and FBI create a precedent when they gave Republican members of Congress access to the kinds of documents that Rod Rosenstein now seems to be saying should not be in the hands of Congress and should stay secret at DOJ? I think they they did, right? I mean, whether or not Schiff should now move to capitalize on that precedent is a little bit of a different question. But no, this this is clearly the precedent they were they were creating. They were warned about it at the time, right? I mean, this this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. You know, I, I know sort of Ben takes a little bit of a different view on this. I'm I'm not especially bothered by Schiff uh, and sort of Hipsy going after this material. You know, I'm certainly not bothered by them asking for it, right? Congress always asks for huge amounts of materials, um, and then it's up to the executive branch to sort of decide what types of battles they're uh, they want to fight. Uh, you know, that said, this is this is a balancing test, and to the extent it was sort of a nonsense how it all came out with uh, with the materials that Nunes, this you know FISA least the memo nonsense, you know, was uh, inflicted substantial, I I think, substantial long-term damage um, for absolutely no value and and actually uh, not just no value, but in order to be released in a way that misled and confused the American public about important national security processes. This is really important material. And the way Robert Mueller decides to approach a final report or the way Bill Barr decides to approach a Mueller report as it goes to Congress um, shouldn't be the final word here. Like the American people really, really, really need the actual answers here. We need it for national security reasons. We need it for basic institutional integrity reasons. Um, We need it because we're founded on principles of transparency that the current situation just kind of can't abide. And so I, I do tend to think that we're in a circumstance in which the department should overwhelmingly favor transparency. And if there ever is a moment to say, well, um, you know, we're going to we're going to take the hit and try and maybe disclose more than than we otherwise would. Or we're going to disclose stuff with a really clear agreement from Congress that they're not going to produce it. I, I think this is the time to have that fight. And, and this is a worthwhile fight having. And I do think the department has put itself in a difficult position because Whatever justification they might offer now, 
for why this material shouldn't be turned over is a substantially weaker argument than the one whenever they decided to turn to turn over the information last time, right? All of the equities are, are less significant. And so uh, I, I, I don't know how DOJ can sort of in good conscience at this point say, no, we're not going to give you this. And, and I can't say I blame, uh, I blame Schiff for, for wanting to get that information. I think it's a, it's a public service. I agree with all of that with a certain set of caveats. And I want to, I, I think it's important to disaggregate three threads. So the traditional orthodox DOJ position is we do not release information on unindict based on unindicted conduct except in certain extreme situations. But generally speaking, if we come, you know, an inch from bringing a case against Susan Hennessy, uh, and we have a huge amount of evidence that you committed a crime, but just not enough to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, and we decide not to bring the case, we're not releasing any of that evidence, right? In addition, there is a separate principle that the internal deliberations of line prosecutors and agents, the internal work product of line people as opposed to political people, they at the Justice Department level protect very assiduously. There is a very important exception to this rule um, or this the, f the first of those two rules. And that is that in certain high profile investigations, uh, they issue reports. Uh, so the most famous example of those, of course, are the, you know, independent counsel final reports, right? Where you actually sit down and you write a narrative work product that includes a whole lot of information that does not find its way into indictments. Bill Barr himself appointed two special prosecutors in during the Bush administration who wrote such reports that uh, eventually got released during the Clinton administration. Uh, a more modern example of this is Jim Comey uh, in the Clinton email investigation says, look, I'm, I'm recommending no reasonable prosecutor would bring a case here. Here's the here's my work product. Here's how, what I'm thinking. So there is a tradition of this. It's not usually, you know, not usually done by the FBI director, but of decisions short of indictment to tell the story. The, the most famous example of this, of course, is the Star Report. In addition, there is a another thing that has developed recently, which is in the context of telling the story to give up a whole lot of investigative work product by line people and sometimes non-investigative work product by line people. So when Comey gave the his conclusions in the Clinton email matter, which a lot of people, including Rod Rosenstein, thought was unforgivable – the department also then and the FBI also then turned around in response to congressional demands and released all the investigative material, all the FBI 302s. This was a terrible thing to do. Um, maybe they didn't have a choice. I don't know. But that is what Devin Nunes captured and made great hay over in going after investigative work product, not even conclusions as to facts, as to individuals, but just the work product of the department and the agents. This is stuff that has never been released in the past. It should never be released. 
And so if the question is, should the Justice Department bend over backwards to tell the story of what they found, including uncharged conduct, I think the answer to that question is yes, and I am fully with Susan on that. If the question is, if you don't like their answers, should you go after the investigative work product of line-level people? That is an extremely dangerous road. It was dangerous when the FBI did it with the Clinton email investigation. It was wrong for Congress to demand it. And I think it was wrong for the FBI. And I said it at the time that it was wrong for the FBI to comply with those demands. It was very wrong of Devin Nunes to demand that stuff about the origins of the, of, of the Russia investigation and super wrong for Rod Rosenstein to comply. And to Adam Schiff's credit, he warned about it at the time. He said they were creating a precedent and he said it would be a precedent that he wouldn't be able to walk away from. So he is being consistent. And he is still wrong because if you establish the principle, if you normalize the principle that we will second guess the judgments of line agents and line prosecutors and we will go after their actual work product, that is a recipe for the abuse of law enforcement by Congress. I think there's one distinction between the Nunes situation and the materials here, and that's that Yes, that analysis applies to every single American citizen except for one, because there is only one American citizen that the Justice Department says cannot be indicted, and that is a sitting president. And so that means that Congress is the only check. The political check is the only check. And so Congress fills the shoes of investigators on behalf of the American people, and no one else can fill those shoes. And so I don't think that I don't think it's the same thing for Congress to say, we aren't going to sort of, we're going to simply accept your summaries or accept your conclusions of this material. I think it's the one area in which actually saying no, we want the work product, we're going to second guess this all the way sort of to the the most, um, you know, minute piece of information because it's just a totally different job when you're talking about the president of the United States. Once you establish that this is the precedent, that this is the norm, you will never, ever put this genie back in the box. And maybe we have always already crossed that Rubicon and we are going to have a situation in which anytime you don't like the outcome of an investigation, you go after the line prosecutors and agents who did it and you get their 302s and you figure out how you would have done the investigation. Maybe that's where we are. That is an extremely dangerous place. And it's, it, it, it is more forgivable if you're Adam Schiff and the precedent has already been set, but it isn't less dangerous. It strikes me, though, that there's an obvious solution to this, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong. The House Intelligence Committee is an investigative body. So if you have questions that you feel that the special counsel didn't sufficiently address or you have a problem with going and checking their work to find out what the answers were that they found – Go find them yourself. Subpoena those witnesses. Get the documents. So that's half the answer. But there's another half of the answer, which is a Mueller report that is actually full and complete and meaningfully disclosed, right? And so if if Bob Mueller is able to hand them a, a work product that 
gives them the ability to do that and say, okay, to the extent we have problems with the, the middle paragraph on page 537, we're going to call that witness and ask him ourselves or ask her ourselves. That really ameliorates the problem. The situation that Susan is describing arises when, if and when, you have a report that doesn't really get disclosed. You get a summary from the attorney general that a reasonable person wouldn't be satisfied with, and you don't really know how they came to the conclusions that the attorney general is describing. So what do you do in that situation? Do you redo the whole investigation, which by the way, you don't have the capacity to do, or do you say, we want to see the underlying work product? And there, you know, there is a solution to this problem, but I don't think the solution is for, I mean, maybe the solution is for Adam Schiff to go after, to, to say he's going after that information. I just think actually doing it in the way that Devin Nunes did is an extremely dangerous thing to do. Well, there's one place that's not sitting around to get polite answers to questions about Russian interference, and it's just zapping them, zapping them on the internet. U.S. Dude, Cyber Command. That was an awesome transition. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so my colleague uh, and uh, uh, sometimes reporting partner, Alan Nakashima, had this really cool scoop this week in the paper, which is that on the day of the midterm elections in 2018, U.S. Cyber Command went after, targeted the Internet Research Agency, the famous troll farm that – uh, ginned up all of those fake ads and bots that caused so much trouble in the 2016 presidential election. And as she quotes somebody with knowledge of this operation, says, basically, they took the IRA offline. So here we have an instance of certainly the cyber command taking advantage of these new authorities that have been given to it to go out and conduct more offensive operations without necessarily needing senior level buy-off from the president or authorization, although I think NBC News is, has, in confirming Ellen's reporting, has added that the president did, in fact, have awareness of this and authorized it. But the point is that they have these new authorities to get out there and be more aggressive in this operation, uh, certainly uh, on the part of people uh, who were, I guess, in favor of it, reflects that more forward-leaning posture. But this struck me as, as there were just two really interesting questions. One was, A, how do we feel about this idea of now having U.S. assets out there pushing back against these Russian or other nefarious groups that are seeking to undermine our election? And B, does this really do any good? Um, I mean, they take them offline for the day of the election. Okay, but isn't the work that they're doing that's really nefarious and troublesome uh, and possibly disruptive the stuff that happens before the election? So I mean, on the one hand, A, really interesting, possibly cool and forward-leaning, but B, is it sort of lame in the way that it was ultimately done in just this one sort of flicking at them on the, the day in question. I mean, so I think it's there is some irony to the idea that NSA and Cyber Command are responding to sort of the loosened drains of the withdrawn PPD-20 to go after Russians for election interference, right? So to the extent that Trump decided to, to you know, uh, let them go out and do what they wanted, that they would uh, use it against the Russians. I don't know. There's something kind of, uh, there's a funny FU in there, I think, to it. You know, look, this is a really small thing. Like, basically, they annoyed the IRA for a day. And that's significant. And it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't really think that it's controversial that they would be out there pushing back, at least to my mind, it, it strikes me as like re relatively obvious. 
that said, you know, I mean, this article sort of suggests, you know, U.S. senators saying, you know, this deterred 2018 election interference. That's clearly not the case, right? This is a this is a very very small operation, and so I do think to sort of hold it up at the the idea that this is producing any kind of long term deterrent effect is just a, it's an overstatement. There are some interesting features uh, about what they're up to. So one is that basically what they're doing is kind of DMing people or sending Russian operators little notes with their full name saying like, hi, right? So it's like a more target rather than waiting for the indictment for the name and change. Hello, Susan. Hey, we know who you are. Um, This apparently set, uh, you know, the IRA was actually looking within themselves. They thought they had some kind of insider threat leak who was giving up their names. Um, Now, a reminder that these stories always pose sources and methods concerns. And so little tidbits bits like that that might just seem kind of funny actually do demonstrate that somebody has insight into the real-time discussions of uh, of these groups, uh, you know, potentially significant. Um, you know, so I think, look, I think we're seeing, um, you know, Nakasone taking control. Um, he's, I think he's he's done a good job. He's, uh, he's established a lot of respect and, and clearly he's not at Fort Meade to kind of sit there and, and do nothing, right? He's, he has the authorities and he intends to use them. Um, you know, that said, this is a small operation. Um, you know, the other observation, which um, Tom Ridd sort of originally made, who's quoted in this article, but also made it on Twitter, is that sort of post shadow brokers, this huge seismic event, which there is no indication the U.S. intelligence community understands really who did it, how it was done, why, what the purpose is. This kind of signaling deterrence is such small potatoes compared to the big giant unknowns. And so interesting, but I don't uh, I don't view it as sort of a, a, a substantially game changing story. I don't disagree with any of that. I do think that this is the first sign of life that we've had of administration approval of serious action to protect election infrastructure and to protect the electoral system. And in the past, when the intelligence community has said, hey, we've got a problem with the with future Russian interference uh, in our electoral system, uh, broadly understood, the president's attitude has basically been to deny the premise. And so to me, the most interesting thing about the story was that the president let it happen and that the, the, uh, I think it was NBC, as you said, uh, addendum to the story, which was that he specifically approved it, if true, is actually an encouraging sign in and of itself. That said, uh, look, I also think, um, I'm trying to think how to say this delicately. Shane and I were in a room recently with a, uh, individual, uh, in a position to, to have a sense of these things who, who does have the sense that they have a longer leash now in this sort of operation, sort of forward cybersecurity, you know, sort of pushing defense out further and earlier. And this does seem like an example of that. It's precisely the sort of thing that did not happen in 2016. And so I do think that's an encouraging sign as well, uh, and maybe a good sign of the future. And that said, I do think the fact that the day after election day, the IRA is back up and running is not a good sign. I mean, you know, one thing is that 
this is not the kind of thing that would have been blocked by PPD-20 when it existed, right? So to the extent that PPD-20 was criticized for forcing too many different agencies to reconcile their equities, uh, you know, and it's, it's been reported that um, maybe there was no uh, authorization under PPD-20 uh, sort of in the entire period. Uh, this this does not strike me as an operation that would have been especially controversial. And so to the extent that it's sort of being offered as proof of loosened reins, yes, you have a little bit of additional agility because maybe you don't have to go through all the way up to the president for the approval process, although it sounds like that's what happened here anyway. But I think what Although will, maybe they wanted him on record saying yes, but for I a think, lot of reasons. I think that's possible. What I think we will start to see the impact of rescinding PPD-20 when we start seeing the fort and cyber command doing genuinely controversial stuff like using third party countries for staging without their authorization right imagine the things which i don't know the intelligence community and the state department might have not agreed on that in the past and so we yes we're seeing a little bit more sort of forward leaning but we actually aren't seeing the kinds of operations or we aren't hearing reporting about the kinds of operations that one could argue something like PPD-20 would have actually restrained in the past. I, I want to make the argument, too, that this is actually quite a significant development and story for, for two reasons. One is operational and the other is from a policy perspective. I mean, it strikes me that one of the great anxieties about launching, you know, if we want to just say broadly cyber attacks or computer network attacks, has often been this issue of are we hitting the right people? What's the blowback? What kind of precedent are we setting? This demonstrates at least as, you know, as reported, a very precise, very restrained, very proportionate, targeted uh, uh, operation, something that would very neatly perhaps comply with law of armed conflict and all the things that, you know, people rightly get concerned about when we're contemplating these kinds of operations. We went out, hit a particular target, took it offline for a day, and that was done, which demonstrates that, A, we know how to do that with some specificity, and B, we could have done it presumably before the election. And that I think leads to an interesting policy aspect, which is arguably very positive, which is that the U.S. government has now demonstrated, yes, we will take action when we believe there is a credible or actual threat by groups or individuals <clears throat> to our democratic processes. It's no secret what the IRA did. It's spelled out in great detail in a Mueller indictment. We clearly understand that the intelligence community has a lot of knowledge about this group and the particular threat that it poses to American democracy. And I think it's interesting and, you know, you could probably cheer it, frankly, some people would, to say that the intelligence community now says it's an obligation that we take on in the military as well to disrupt those kinds of efforts when we believe they're about to happen. So it, it would have been, to my mind, scandalous if, you know, the U.S. government, with the knowledge that it has about what the IRA did in 2016, saw it happening again in the midterms, which Dan Coats clearly indicated publicly that they did when he used the 9-11 lights are blinking, blinking red reference uh, to warn us about what was coming in the midterm. If they had just sat there and done nothing, particularly if the president of the United States, with all of his particular 
particular history with Russia in 2016 would have known about it. So it's just very, I think it, it, it's having studied these kinds of operational and policy challenges that have sort of constipated this whole system for the better part of a decade with regards to this new domain of warfare and operations. It's interesting and, and I think encouraging to see people dealing with it in what seemed like a fairly rational and pretty restrained way. Go server command. Go object lesson. Ben, do you have one? I do. On the Lawfare Store which you can find at thelawfarestore.com. I'll never we, remember that. We have rational security beanies. Beanies? And they are awesome. They're like knitted rational security beanies. They're new. Uh, they've And and you can get them. Uh, and I will uh, put a picture of one on our show page. Uh, uh, but you should go get a rational security beanie and tweet it at us at R-A-T-L security on Twitter. Yeah. I yeah. think Matt Kahn should have to wear it in the picture. I think next week, uh, uh, next week we will have Matt Kahn with his headphones and at the audio deck and a beanie. Nice. Whenever I think of beanies, I always think of babies for some reason, like Beanie Baby. Just to be clear, these are for adults. Although we unlike do have, Beanie Babies. Unlike the baby grow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and unlike Beanie Babies, which are for, <laughs> for, for large people who collect them. Um, I have an object um, in our grand tradition of log rolling. Um, my object is a little chit-chat that I am having next Tuesday with one FBI director, Christopher Ray, <gasps> We've heard at of RSA. Um, so I'm going to do the keynote interview with, uh, with Director Ray on the FBI at the heart of combating cyber threats, which I feel like is a good, like, you know, ominous ass-kicking kind of title. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, I think it will be streamed online eventually, although I'm not positive. Um, but if you are at uh, planning to attend RSA and uh, want to come hear what the FBI director has to say on what exactly they're up to in cyberspace, come Mr. Ray, us. can you tell us your precise technical capabilities in cyberspace? <laughs> Who can you zap? <laughs> I really want personally... to make a joke about a question right now, but I'm afraid somebody will hear this and then they'll be like, we're not doing this anymore. Were you I in the room it. when we took the IRA offline? Was it like that, like in the Bin Laden Was there raid? like a button and you were like, now, and press the button and then the IRA was Was Hillary was Clinton coughing? <laughs> um, we will, uh, for those of you who can't be there, we will figure out a way to post Susan's interview with Chris Ray on Lawfare. And that will be our object lesson the week that it happens. Double and dip. then we'll do an object lesson about that object. Oh, my right. God. And it'll just for the rest of the See if you can time. get him We're to wear a rational that. security beanie, though. He doesn't really seem like the beanie. <laughs> he's, got, he's got great hair. He wouldn't want to muss it up. He does have nice hair. He has hair. great hair. Mm -hmm. Are you going to give him a rational security beanie, though? Um, is it under twenty dollars? I feel like otherwise it would violate the prohibition on government officials accepting gifts. Just get yourself a selfie with him, you with each of you wearing a rational security beanie. That's your mission. That will okay. become our Twitter photo, of which we desperately need a new one. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. Well, in the meantime, that's the end of the podcast. So hold that image in your head for the next seven days until you hear from us again. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on lawfareblog.com. Are you taking my picture? Yeah. Why? 
I just tweet it during the show sometimes. Because of your handsome face. I can be the object for myself today. Uh, you can remember to get your beanie and your baby grow and your um, Chris Ray wig on. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Whenever the merch site is, I've already forgotten. You can follow us on Twitter as Ben said at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a nice rating and review. We really appreciate it. It helps us out. Our audio engineer and hat model this week was... Is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Michael Cohen's new Greek lyric poetry band, We're All Liars. Very nice. <laughs> Susan is like, why didn't I call in sick? We cannot in good faith ask people to give us a five-star rating after that. Seriously, just rate the band name this week. That'll be enough for I me. I thought you were going to go with liar, liar, pants on fire. Liar, liar, toga on fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sophia Yan, who's texting me now saying she will never do our music again, actually plays our end credit theme. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you next week. Cheerio. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 